Welcome to Blogs on Tape. Today's post is Unto the Ripening of the World, written by Benton Molina for Incunabuli.com. Incunabuli is a gothic fairy tale campaign setting told through prose. Please enjoy. Unto the Ripening of the World. A flint snapped in the dark. Greasy flame rippled over meager kindling, hair and pine chippings soaked in oil. A startling blaze, a blinding point in a pitchy void. Sprite, mumbled Dole, squinting tired eyes. He pulled his miner's cap low. His companion, a spindly ragman with a sack and a guitar on his back, shaded his red orbs. Yeah. They sat stiffly, squinting, hunched on the stone. About, gray trunks showed in the dark, vertiginously tall, countless pillars of granite. Great chains hung amidst, their anchors lost beyond firelight. Bony things dangled from their hooked ends. Dole watched them, human-shaped, mostly, all still as stone. Who's hung them there, Xenophore? He pointed. Black knights, said the ragged man, not looking. He plucked a long, dry bone from his sack, placed it on the fire. It cracked, caught quickly. Built these halls a long time ago. You ever see one? Seen? He shrugged, piled more bones on the fire. They smoked grayly. Nah. Seen their stone beds, though, with themselves carved on top like kings. Why'd they do it? Storage, I guess. They sat a while. Senaphor piled leg bones on the fire till it smoked and stank, hot and oily. Dole slouched, watched. Idly, he pulled a little round cage from his jacket. A battered toad squatted inside, large as his thumb. It gave a peep. Senaphor looked up, eyed the toad. Chow or pet? Neither, Dole frowned at the amphibian. Semince toad, a tool. What's it do ye? said the ragman. He produced a tin kettle from his sack, blew out the dust, put it on the fire. Dole turned his lip. It's meant to keep a person from falling down here. Senaphore opened a tin, shook some coffee grounds into the kettle. Lot of good it did, eh? Aye, don't be telling me. He pondered a bit, watched his companion pour from a canteen. Mad luck I ran into you. It's worth marveling at. Yeah, well, said Senaphore. Suppose it is. Dole eyed the toad. It gave him a lop-eyed look of distaste. I'll set this little gob free when we get back. He stuffed it back into his coat. And show you a real good ale back at home, Senaphore. I'm right grateful. Not troubling me, croaked the ragman. Be back before long. He stretched, groaned for his joints, drew the battered guitar from his back. With a huff, he leaned against his sack, plucked a string, turned a peg, plucked again. Dole frowned. Something going to hear, he said, looked about. Senaphore pointed up. Nothing to hear anymore. He plucked and tuned till the cat gut sang an open G, began to pick out a lazy toke. Strings echoed long and lonesome midst the pillars and the hanging bones. Senaphore played slow, listened for every note returned from the void. Steam curled into the black. Bones snapped, spat sparks. The kettle burbled. Dole poured thick coffee into copper mugs. They drank gratefully, despite the grit and taste of char.
A crack of iron boomed over the dark stone. The travelers froze, listened. A coiling crash of falling chain met their ears, a sequential thunder of cracking links, blaringly loud over the sheer breadth of stone. It went on for whole seconds, directionless, reverberations shuddering long after it quit. Dole's eyes bugged. I think something did here, he whispered. Yeah, scrambled Xenophor, red eyes darting. He kicked her linen-wrapped feet, hunched in alarm. He stowed his guitar, scuttled to the nearest pillar. Out of the light, quick-like. They scuttled behind the darkened rear of one granite trunk, pressed a cold stone, they heaved nervous breath, quiet as could be allowed. For many minutes, they hid. Scraping footfalls gained from the black. Footfalls, accompanied by the slick grind of dragging chain. Metal gleamed dully. Dole's eyes bugged. He tapped Senaphor, pointed. From some far angle between the fire and the traveler's hiding place, there stumbled a bony thing. An emaciated wreck, pegged through the collarbone by hook and iron chain. It leaned into that weight, drug raw heels hard over stone. Briefly, it stopped, turned to the fire. Some vague light caught on its lipless teeth, its eyes bolted over by old steel. It walked on. Only long after its grinding faded did Dole dare speak. Blimey, what are they? Saucery, said Xenophor. Dole gulped, looked to the fire, now burning low. Say we take the coffee and we run the opposite way. Yeah, they did. An afternoon drowse subsumed the lecture hall. Some hundred students dozed where they sat, backs warmed by a green sunset filtered through ivy-encrusted windows. Blue uniform jackets strewed the aisles, discarded for cooler shirt sleeves. In the heat, students reclined, soles propped on groaning seat backs. The door cracked open, heads lifted with vague alertness. A mop-haired professor in a blue tailcoat appeared. He carried a battered briefcase and a meter-long archival box bound in brass. Good morning, everyone. A half-hearted chorus of Good afternoon, Professor Piedmont, met him. Piedmont grinned crookedly, skipped across the bronze stage. He strode there to a sunlit desk, set his box down carefully, dropped his briefcase unceremoniously. With a sleeve, he gave the hot blackboard a perfunctory, ineffectual swipe, failed to clean it at all. He turned to the class, straightened his coat. Pardon my lateness, he grimaced. I wasted a considerable time convincing our good dean to let me back to the conservatory archives, he gestured to the box. A chuckle met that statement. Now, continued Piedmont, I understand it is a lovely day, and that the temptation of the outdoors in the West Garden is likely disabling your ability to pay attention to another lecture about Polish daubing rituals. At this statement, a mutter went up, many eyebrows raised at the professor. Ah, don't be surprised, it was my year that started all that illicitude in the first place. Someone applauded. Piedmont waved it off. So, in consideration of this disablement, I've elected to lecture on something else. He picked up his coattails, sat on the desk. If I could have everyone's attention, I think you'll find this a relief from the daubing rituals. He squinted up and down the aisles, frowned. Attention includes you, Hodgkins, Forder. Don't think I can't see you snogging. Hodgkins and Forder blushed. Quit. Good. Piedmont shifted, leaned back till the rapidly receding sunlight painted him only nose up. 
To begin, let's briefly forget we're studying ancient arcana, instead focus on the present day. Head tilted at him, dull-eyed. These days, there's a lot of doomsaying going on. What with Parousia and the Los Lachania epidemic? Strange times. He gestured expansively. If we are to be doomsayers ourselves, how do we suppose civilization might end? Silence. Beyond the open window, a chaffinch sang briefly. Sunlight sunk further lower, left more of the desk to shadow. Students shifted awkwardly. Piedmont looked about expectantly, drummed his heels against the desk. Come now, what do we fear? Finally, a hand raised. Johansson. Plague, sir, said Johansson, quiet. Piedmont raised a finger. You're right, but plague could only play a part, he nodded to Johansson. If plague relies on us to reproduce, there's no sense in killing us all. Mice will remain, in any case. Anyone else? Another hand. Corel. Corel adjusted her glasses, tentatively spoke. Aggressions from the south. A holy war, begun by the southerners. I guess. Piedmont's face pinched politely, as if he were considering a mouthful of wine. Destabilizing, at most. One side will most certainly remain, likely that which holds the Bay of Grey. He looked about. Any others? A pause. People tittered amongst themselves. The sun had sunk further, casting their faces into backlit obscurity. Piedmont surveyed them, hopeful. I promise we're getting somewhere with this. Give me another. Manifest doom, called someone in the back, abruptly. Piedmont grinned. Very good, he stood, began to pace into the beam of sunlight and back again. Fast is the shield against night, yes? One of our oldest cultural motifs. We must necessarily defeat the encroaching other and return to anti-interstiction security. He stepped into shadow. Lest the world of man fall to elves. Piedmont waved an insistent finger. That, according to a millennium of folklore, of tradition, of propaganda, would be the end of the world. A chorus of nods. Hence, by breaking the forests and slaying the monsters and building our cities of salt and iron, we banish the other. And banishing the other is good, he paused. Right? More nodding. Piedmont shook his head. Wrong. The drowsy rose looked askance. They straightened, frowned, muttered amongst themselves. Piedmont grinned back at them, returned to sit on his desk. He reached for the archival box, began to undo its clasps. Wrong? Why wrong? He mimed. He undid the lid, gently removed something heavy from within. In the shadow, it was indistinct, large in his hands. Because the elves supplanted something far, far worse. He lifted the thing into light. It was an iron helm, near a meter long, cruelly beaked like an eyeless crow's skull. Pitted and black, it shone not a glimmer in the sunlight. Nossians, he said the most awful practitioners of sorcery since the ancient Nor. Whispers filled the hall, mingled with summer breeze whistling through parted window panes. Students leaned forward, no longer a hint at O's. Masters of the Precantian age, not humans any longer, but sorcerers. A people so reveled in their black art, they wore their armor as skin. He flipped the helm over, revealed patterns inside like spongy bone. The front rows gasped in disgust. Nausea ruled all the spine of the coast for centuries. Not a sorcerer's empire, but a union of equals. 
Piedmont grew louder, more riled. Every Norsian was a lord amongst lords. They shared their secrets of power and plague, their resources, their millions of chimeras and cauldron slaves. Their union was so immense, the mere empires of the world paid them tithes of flesh and steel. They practically ruled the world. Piedmont put down the helm. Can anyone tell me what's so odd about this story? What doesn't add up? A hand shot up. Yes, Philomy. Professor, I think it's odd we've never heard of it before. Ah, said Piedmont. That's because it's unpopular to teach. The crown doesn't really approve, and you'll see why momentarily. Anyone else? Another hand. Dodd. Dodd spoke loudly. If Norcia was so influential, why is I gone? Where's the ruins? Piedmont snapped his fingers. Dodd's guessed it. Where did they go? He began to pace again. Only a bare strip of sun still shone above the stage and blackboard. After centuries of dominion, the Norsians hit an obstacle. Somehow, they managed to draw the wrath of the elves. On the dim stage, Piedmont's eyes twinkled. And for all their slaves, and their fire, and their iron, the Norsians could not beat the other. So, they buried themselves, in the underworld, in their fortress catacombs. They buried their armies, their chimeras, their secrets. They shut themselves away in black sarcophagi and went to sleep until the elves went away. Piedmont paused. And they still sleep today. The hall was now quite dark. A mere orange glow shone through the ivy-clogged panes. Reflections of eyes watched the professor, uncertain. They waited. Piedmont carefully placed the helmet back in its box. He resumed speaking, softly. If the forests are cut, and the elves are driven off, and the other world is banished, Nausea will reawaken. With all its sorcery, and its chimeras, and its millions risen from their bone pits. That would be the end of the world. Piedmont stood, plucked up his briefcase in the archive box. He turned to face the darkened rose. Silent eyes surveyed him. I'll give related readings on Thursday. Enjoy your weekend, everyone. With that, he departed. Nausea Beneath the skin of the world, in the dry capillaries of mountains' dead bones, lie black gates to Nausea. Nausea, once a realm of august sorcery, neither monarchy nor coven, but lord apparent to all the world, is now a relic, an antiquity black with wicked tarnish, sunk and sleeping, fled to the foreign depths of the underworld. At their height, some two thousand years ago, the armored sorcerers of Nausea commanded all the mountainous spine of the world. From catacomb fortresses, cut miles into granite by mindless slaves, they brewed armies from gluttonous cauldrons. Thousands of lobotomized slaves, eyes shut by steel plate, labors prolonged by sorcerer's half-life, countless chimeras cut from scorpion and bull, babe and wolf, serpent, goat, and lion. Millions of cauldron-born grues, plague repurposed with military intent. With these armies, the Nausians conquered all the world, fast and confident in their lairs. No foe endured before the Nausians. 
for no human force could endure the ravages of plague and endless attrition. With every cauldron-born slain, another corpse was fed to the pots of sorcery, soon ready for redeployment with new life and fresh armament. Attrition assured the Gnossians every victory, for their reserves grew with every death, and all the while their sorcery grew only more terrible. In their formative years, they quick slipped the limits of death, became no longer men and women, but beings of their own design, creatures of high, terrible elegance. They forsook their mortal bones for those of titans, greater and more statuesque. They flayed their own frames, reset the flesh with plated ebon iron. They discarded their own faces, their human eyes, chose each instead the blank, beaked gaze of high terror. The Gnossians cared not for low humanity, let alone what remained of their own. Any and all sorcerer comrades to perish in the name of domination and hideous progress would be gladly dissected, absutered into incunabula of immense scale. These were books of sorcery, sown from the brains of the greatest, most perverse practitioners who have ever crafted the black art. By these fleshly tomes, the knowledge and culture of Nausea grew ever greater, ever queerer with every passing century. But before the third century of its height could round, Nausea was met with one foe which would not be so easily quashed nor ensorcelled, the other world and all its fickle children. For all those brief centuries after the interstiction of the worlds, the Nausians had ruled in a relative vacuum, contested only by peoples of middling power and small sorcery. After crushing these, they set their dire conquest to the world's frayed edge, the raw borders of the alien otherworld, the home of the elves. Black eyes in creeping mist, capable of sudden and vicious violence when provoked. The Gnossians' provocation proved their undoing. Though they had no iron, no worldly sorcery, the elves' response was fast and devastating. Nigh invisible, immune to plague, and charged with a hostility so honed, so coordinated, it could only be the product of an ecosystem itself enraged, the pale soldiers of the other cut down cauldron-born armies with one-sided ease. Sorcerers themselves fell on the battlegrounds, their iron carapaces proofless to the cruel ribbon lances of otherworldly knights. Whether by fear or by hard consensus, the Gnossians withdrew to their fortress catacombs. To the black of the underworld they went, to their square kilometers of chiseled halls in lightless granite, carved by millions of cauldron slaves over an age of dominion. In that awful subterranea, in uncounted, disparate tombs of unfathomable scale and separation, the Gnossians buried themselves. They locked away their cauldrons, their precious tomes in trapped complexes of horrid device, guarded by their direst, deathless chimeras. They marched their remaining legions into bone pits, ossuaries for once and future armies. They hooked their legions of slaves by their collars and their thin hips, hung them by the thousands in stark halls like queer stalactites. They interred even themselves in black sarcophagi secreted in grim sepulchres. In this way, Nausea disappeared, came to rest beneath the skin of Norin for ponderous millennia. It has slept in all its strength and all its sorcery in the silence and the dark. Unto now.
unto the ripening of the world. Somewhere, after all this time, black cauldrons are lit anew. This has been Unto the Ripening of the World by Benton Molina, read by the author. Please note, this reading does not include the original end notes or author's note. The listener may find them at incunabuli.com. Logs on Tape is a project devoted to making our beloved blogosphere more accessible and discoverable by way of audio recording. If you would like to find out more or contribute, visit blogsontape.paperspencils.com. Thank you for listening.